The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Unleashing the Potential of Perioperative Immunotherapy in Resectable Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Leveraging Science, Enhancing Collaboration, and Improving Outcomes with Neoadjuvant and or Adjuvant Checkpoint Inhibition. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HXS860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Uh, this is called Unleashing the Potential of Perioperative Immunotherapy in Resectable Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. This is our faculty. I'm Jessica Donington. I'm a professor of surgery at the University of Chicago. I'm joined by hopefully illustrious colleagues that you are well aware of, Dr. David Harple, professor of surgery from Duke University, and Jonathan Spicer, associate professor. I thought you were like the emperor up there in... Uh, <laughs> no, no, just the, the worker bee. But associate professor at McGill. So some pretty strong expertise sit next to me on the use of uh, immunotherapies in resectable non-small cell lung cancer. So our goals today is to enhance your understanding of the latest evidence supporting the use of neoadjuvant and or adjuvant immunotherapy in resectable lung cancer patients. We also want to augment your skills at identifying candidates for and integrating neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapies uh, and individualized treatment plans for patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer. So I think we'll start. So it's kind of surprising that we haven't seen this slide yet as part of this uh, AETS session. Uh, and it is the new guidelines for multimodality uh, management of lung cancer uh, and expert consensus guideline from the AATS. And what I really want to highlight is that central message that the management of patients with early stage lung cancer is evolving. I hope that everyone recognizes that from this meeting. But more importantly, that thoracic surgeons should be aware of recent neoadjuvant and adjuvant trials and should lead multidisciplinary discussions. We really need to be at the center of these treatment decisions, and that means we need to keep abreast of the evidence. So the plan for this session is to start by reviewing those trials which have led to regulatory approvals here in the U.S. That's the neoadjuvant checkmate trial and then the adjuvants in power and keynote trials, and then look at the three periadjuvant trials which were reported earlier this year. So I don't want to say that this session is a review and a quiz for all of you to see if you've been paying attention during this two-day symposium, but it might be a little bit. So I'm going to invite Dr. Spicer up to review the neoadjuvant immunotherapy evidence. Okay, this will be quick because I hope you've all heard this before a million times, but I still think it's worth uh, worth worth reiterating it. And and there's always little pearls that we pick up along the way. So uh, here you have the three-year update that Dr. Ford presented at the European Lung uh, Cancer Con Congress uh, this past uh, spring. And you can see that we have a durable uh, improvement in the event-free survival. I think this is important to pay attention to because um, with other types of therapies, for example, with the targeted therapies, there was some concern, particularly in Adora, as the treatment ended, that perhaps you might have more recurrences. And what we see here is that that short course of treatment, we're talking about nine weeks of preoperative therapy, four or so week break before they get operated. So within about 12 weeks, the patient has completed all their treatment and then they go on to uh, their life, which is 
if they're cured, that is a true definition of cure, uh, meaning that they're not getting any treatment. And so um, I w- I'm very excited to see these outcomes c- continuing to be sustained three years out, and uh, we'll see if it goes on to five years uh, as we wait. And, and what we're seeing is really an effect that's happening systemically. So this is time to death or distant metastasis. We know most of our patients who recur distantly will ultimately die of their disease. Um, and so the, the, that short course of treatment, and I think it's worth it for people to look at the iSABRE trial, where patients receive just four cycles of immunotherapy with SBRT and you're seeing improvements in EFS in that context. Well, it, it doesn't necessarily take uh, a ton of treatment to affect a very uh, powerful uh, impact on, on this, whatever systemic micrometastasis might be present. And of course, this is what we're all uh, aiming to achieve for our patients, which is an overall survival benefit. It's important to remember that Checkmate 816 was a, a relatively small study with only about 350 or so patients. So the statistical power to detect uh, overall survival uh, uh, benefit from a statistical perspective is somewhat limited. That said, there's still a sort of, I think, clinically important 14% gain in overall survival at three years. And a lot like the EFS is, is sustained as time goes by. Um, these are uh, the outcomes for patients uh, who either got chemo nivolumab or chemo alone in those who received surgery. And you'll see they, they look reasonable and similar to the whole population since it was only about uh, 16 uh, or 17% of patients who didn't go on to uh, get an operation. And you can see these curves are much more frightening for those who do not go to surgery. So good news, it's important to have an operation um, as part of the, the regimen here. I think that's important for our practice and it's important for us to support our patients through the preoperative therapy to get them to the uh, operation. Um, just to understand these curves, if you look at the top left uh, corner, the EFS, one of the events is uh, not going to surgery due to progressive disease. So that's why you see that sharp uh, drop-off. This isn't necessarily patients dying. These are, these are at three months, the patients who did not make it to surgery. Um, so by definition, it's an event, which uh, corresponds to this specific group of patients that we're looking at here. Um, and so that's why when you, I think more valuable curve is to look at time to death or distant metastasis. Uh, and it's interesting that despite not getting surgery, those patients who received uh, chemo nivolumab have a, a longer time to death or uh, metastasis than those who got chemo alone. Um, so it's uh, the way I interpret this is that patients can be salvaged despite uh, not going to surgery with forms of local therapy or escalation of systemic therapy. Um, And it's also important to understand that these patients who do not go to surgery um, are patients for a good proportion of them who are progressing on our most aggressive form of systemic therapy. So they will not perform well and they shouldn't really be compared to uh, Pacific um, because we know, for example, that patients who are PD-L1 negative in Pacific will do poorly and probably don't get a whole lot of benefit from that adjuvant or valumab. So you have to understand that these are a biologically aggressive group of patients. Um, again, I'll reiterate that most of the benefit of chemonivolumab is being affected distantly. You can see a reduction by half from 22% to 10% um, distant recurrence, but not so much on the local regional front. So no, no real 
important difference in the uh, local regional recurrence. And that speaks to the importance of doing good surgery, getting that highest uh, lymph node resected and, and hopefully benign um, and getting good margins on your patients uh, is, is very important. Okay, Dr. Fonda. Thank you. So now we are going to move on to adjuvant immuno immunotherapy, which is actually something we haven't discussed a ton at this meeting, but something that hopefully you are familiar with. So this is the Empower 010 data presented by Heather Wakeley almost two years ago now at ASCO. Uh, patients in this trial were completely resected, went on to four cycles of adjuvant uh, cisplatin-based chemotherapy, and then were randomized to uh, a year of atezolizumab or not. These were the early disease-free survival curves. Um, and uh, you can see that in the primary study population, which is the first curve you see there, uh, for those with a PDL1 greater than 1% stage 2 or 3, we see a significant improvement in overall survival as they broaden the population to include all randomized patients and the intention to treat. We still see an improvement, but not as robust. And therefore, the regulatory approval for this was based on that first curve. I know this is a busy slide with lots of Kaplan-Meier curves, but let's kind of dwell down to what's important and not important here. One is the inclusion or exclusion of EGFR and ALK patients. We know that EGFR and ALK patients can have PDL1 positivity and they can respond to these medicines, but it is important to note that they respond to their targeted therapies much better. And therefore we have really begun, or not since these trials were designed to exclude these patients. The other thing that's important to note about EGFR and ALK patients is that it's not easy to switch from an immunotherapy to a targeted therapy because of the risk of pneumonitis. So really, since this trial was designed, we have now worked to exclude those patients. So really, those top three curves are where the focus would be. So again, the first curve shows you all patients 2 to 3A who are pdl one positive, and then we look at those who are low expressors, 1 to 49. And then the group where the response has been the ro most robust, the high expressing group, PDL1 greater than 50%. I will tell you in Europe, that is where the approval is. And they do not give uh, azimutizolizumab for those with uh, PDL1 expression 1 to 49. Nexus brings us to Keynote 091, or the PEARLS trial. Got a little less press here in the United States, I think, as opposed to the tezolizumab. It was a trial which was primarily run, I think almost entirely run, in Europe. Uh, had slightly different inclusion and in different endpoints, but was otherwise very similar. One difference between PEARLS and uh, Empower 010 was uh, that this trial did not require uh, platinum-based chemotherapy. It was encouraged but up to a quarter patients in this trial did not see them. And it does mimic the atezolizumab trial looking at the same group, meaning all patients uh, who are PDL1 positive, we see a pretty uh, real separation of those curves with a hazard ratio of 0.76. One issue with this trial and why people are, I don't know if the word would be frustrated as much as scratching their heads, is that another endpoint of this trial, which seemed like it should have been a slam dunk, 
was that they would see an overall, uh, sorry, a disease-free survival benefit in the high-expressing group. And they didn't see that, as you can see, a crossing of those curves at about 18 months. Uh, and the only explanation we have for this is that the control arm performed exceedingly well, um, but it has really always been a mystery as to why this group did not uh, perform uh, as well as we see in other trials. And in that sense, this is a bit uh, of uh, an outstanding uh, finding. There are two, uh, at least two ongoing trials uh, that are still, uh, have yet to be reported. One is the ANVIL trial through this uh, alliance, and then the BR31 trial. ANVIL looks at the addition of nivolumab and uh, BR31 with dervalumab, otherwise quite similar with some subtle differences in their design, uh, and hopefully we will start to see these results soon. All right, we're going to move on now. And I think Dr. Harpole is going to take over on the periadjuvant trials. So this is an overview of the trials that we just saw. Uh, we just went through 816. We went through the adjuvant. I'm going to talk about the three sort of uh, the perioperative trials. In other words, therapy up front, therapy out back, with the theory uh, that giving consolidated immunotherapy as an adjuvant may actually uh, increase uh, the uh, survival over time. So Keynote 671 was just published uh, like a week and a half ago in the journal. We had heard their results uh, previously uh, and its new adjuvant Pembro plus chemotherapy followed by surgery and adjuvant Pembro uh, compared to just uh, platinum chemotherapy. The interesting thing about this trial, uh, the, uh, the adenocarcinomas were uh, had to have uh, uh, pemetrexid and, cis and cisplatin, and the non-adenocarcinomas had to have gemcitabine and cisplatin. So it's a little different from 816 and and uh, uh, GN in that there was a little more prescriptive uh, chemotherapy, including carboplatin. But the EF EFS um, was uh, shows here that uh, at 24 months, there's about a, a 18, 20% difference. The hazard ratio was uh, 0 0.58 uh, for the uh, Pembro arm. You can see that the major pathologic response and, and complete pathologic response rates were significant. The blue is the treatment arm with Pembro uh, versus chemotherapy in the uh, orange-brown. And again, there was uh, a significant difference in both the MPR 90% necrosis versus PASCR 100%. Uh, Aegean uh, was a trial with a similar design uh, with patients that had uh, chemotherapy with dervalumab versus uh, uh, placebo afterwards, and dervalumab is consolidative therapy. You can see, again, uh, a good 10 to 12% difference at 24 months. Note both Aegean and 617 are relatively immature. Aegean's at, at one year follow-up and uh, 671 is at uh, 23 months. So both these are, are pretty immature tiles, but they did meet uh, both their uh, criteria. And uh, similarly for PATH-CR and major, lodge, major pathologic response, 90% necrosis, you can see the blue panel, the treatment arm with Dervalumab was significantly improved to the chemo alone arm. 
I, I just reviewed these data early this morning, so I'll go through it. I think it's important to note in all three of those trials, somewhere between 18 and 20% of the patients did not undergo resection. Uh, and in that central bar uh, for the Aegean trial, it was 40% were patients who progressed by radiologic criteria. Uh, and about a third were patients who had adverse events and were not able to have surgery during the proscribed period of time. And then there was some refusal uh, by patients uh, at that point. But those who underwent uh, resection, the vast majority were under, able to undergo complete resections. Uh, and uh, I show these easier. You can see in the lower panels, those who completed surgery, it was bit well over 90%. Uh, with the duration of surgery around three and a half hours in, in both groups. Neotorch um, is a China trial uh, of another uh, PDL1 inhibitor. Uh, and you can see again their data. Uh, the trial was uh, approximately the, uh, four, 400 patients, so about the half the size of 671 or GN, but again, a significant difference for the blue uh, treated arm uh, with uh, major pathologic response and path CR rates, again, significantly better. It is interesting that the that the uh, chemotherapy arm in this trial, I think the, it is performed a little bit worse. One would usually expect a path CR rate of around 5% for chemo and a major pathologic response rate around 15 to 18%. So I think that the trial is positive, but the, but clearly the plus, the uh, treatment non-treatment arm was a little worse. There are some other ongoing trials uh, that we just heard. Uh, the press release when, from 77T looks like it's uh, it's met its uh, event-free survival uh, point. Empower 030 is uh, again the uh, paclitaxel, pemetrexid, gemcitabine with or without Atezo, and again, Atezo as a perioperative. Uh, the Checkmate 7-7 is, is uh, nivolumab with nivolumab uh, or placebo as an adjuvant. Uh, and the last trial um, is the, is the tizolizumab, uh, again, with it up front and as an adjuvant. So, and this is just the press release that was from two days ago for uh, Checkmate 7-7. All right. I think from here, we move on to a brief case and some discussion. And then thank you for those who have put in questions. We have some really good questions to go through. So we'll try not to dwell too long on the case. So this is a patient of Dr. Harples, I believe, a former smoker 20, uh, year, uh, 20 pack years or 20 years ago uh, with pretty good PFTs for North Carolina with an FEV1 of 58 and a DLCO of 90, ECOG1 asymptomatic with a six centimeter superhylar tumor in the right upper lobe. Uh, here is the CT and the PET, and then we can see the large superhylar mass and that PET positive uh, lymph node in the paratracheal location. Patient underwent a, a brain MRI, which is negative. Nothing else showed up on PET. Underwent an EBUS, uh, 4R7 and 4L were negative. Uh, but the 11R was positive, and they were able to biopsy the mass itself. It's an adenocarcinoma. So we have a T2 slash T3 based on invasion, uh, and then N1 tumor. So after hearing uh, a lot about induction therapy, uh, most of this room is in favor. Uh, so I'll ask you guys, 
What would make you not want to induce this patient? Are there patient or tumor characteristics which would drive you away from resection? Well, for sure, a, a biomarker profile that, you know, shows a EGFR mutation or something or ALK, uh, alteration would, would push me towards upfront surgery in this setting. Um, but patient-specific factors, you know, uh, it's it's hard to argue against new adjuvant. I, I think that the N1 node uh, can be problematic uh, and present a more challenging operation, but it's not a reason not to do it for me. Yeah, I, I chose this picture, this picture because number one is a stage two where there's still some controversy on someone who's N1, you know, this is not, that. would you do this? And then I also chose it because as we were, Jonathan and I were discussing earlier, a, a large right upper lobe tumor that's N1 or so forth is is pretty much, you know, a slam dunk towards this approach. But this was uh, a little bit more of a central tumor and and is probably going to require a little more, more of a complex resection. Uh, and and I, I think in a good performance status, these people are ideal to shrink this some and then be able to do a complete resection on because I'm not sure an upfront surgery that you'd be able to do a complete resection on this patient. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. so. Well, Dr. Lieberman showed us that looked like a piece of cake when he did it. <laughs> well, I'll send him to Chicago and, and say. <laughs> so I think uh, Dr. Spicer brought up a really important point, and there were two questions on the iPad regarding mutational testing and uh, neoadjuvant or even adjuvant IO approaches. So again, the trials, uh, when they were designed, did not always exclude uh, patients with EGFR and ALK mutations. But in my institution, before we start on a checkmate regime, we always test our patients for EGFR and ALK. And if they have one, we actually don't go down the neoadjuvant regime. We will either resect up front, or if they're a 3A, we would just give them induction chemotherapy and then adura osimertinib on the back end. Any different for you? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's also the PDL one level. One of the questions that came up is, and I, I've missed what the PDL one level was for, for your patient, uh, Dave. But um, as you may know, in Europe, PDL one less than one percent is not approved currently, and and so that's based on the sort of lack of really strong proof that there's EFS benefit in that category of patients. Um, we just recently finished doing a meta-analysis of uh, the available phase three data. And there is statistically significant benefit to uh, in the less than one percent, but it's of lesser magnitude than than what you see for the PDL one positive patients. Um, so you know, we, I think that that plays into some decisions, but not really. We will treat those patients. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a was a power issue in in eight one six and a GN with eight hundred patients. You know, there, there is a what you hope to find is a stair step of response from less than one, one to 49, greater than 50, that they were all significant. I think it's more of an impact in the adjuvant setting because the data just aren't as robust. And, and I, you know, I think that the indications for giving adjuvant immunotherapy, certainly PDL status has a much larger impact. And yes, it does feel a little counterintuitive that in the induction setting, we are somewhat agnostic to PDL1 expression and we'll give it. We certainly are enthusiastic when the PDL1 is high, but we do not stop if there's no PDL1 uh, expression. And yet in the adjuvant setting, all decisions change. 
It, it is very confusing because you'd think that in, in the adjuvant setting, you have a ground truth. You have the true PDL one the whole tumor has been resected. And we know that the expression is heterogeneous. And that's part of the reason why I will offer in the neoadjuvant setting, even PDL one negative, because they may have biopsied an area that is negative, but the patient ultimately turns out to have. Uh, so so it, it's a bit of a confusing space. And I think the bottom line is PL1 is not a great marker. And with the neoadjuvant regimens, you're giving concurrent chemoimmunotherapy, which is which is a standard of care for the metastatic patients uh, across those. Uh, you know, I, one thing I would like to ask it to you, and, and it's not a question, maybe get a show of hands, is that these data have certainly made us adapt our regimen for the what used to be, say, the straightforward six centimeter right upper lobe cancer that's EBUS negative. Um, you know, what are you doing? We've been pushing those people towards uh, a chemo IO induction approach. I mean, at, in, in Montreal, are you doing that? In Chicago, if, if you have, you know, what looks like a very large but uh, isolated low bar tumor, or are you taking them to surgery? I, I, I don't have the right answer here I'm asking. There isn't the right answer. So I, we push toward induction. And I think I have two reasons why I do it. One is that scientific reason that I do think we get better T-cell clones and better, you know, uh, eradication of micrometastatic disease if we can teach our T-cells, you know, about the tumor with the tumor in place. Um, and I think the second reason is, and maybe it'll all change if we have perioperative uh, approvals, three cycles versus, you know, 13 cycles, I think three is easier. And I think it's a really easy sell to our patients. Yeah. And I think that the comparative morbidity of, uh, of the, at least the, the 816 regimen is, is so much in favor of, uh, of that versus that whole year, which comes with clear added morbidity, more patients on steroids, et cetera. So it's, uh, plays into the decision-making for sure. I'm going to go to another one of our questions because I think it still plays a role in this case. Um, someone asked, um, what are your recommendations regarding holding or restarting IO before or after surgery? Is there a window that you like? Would you operate three days after the last cycle? Uh, what kind of window do you like to operate after IO? So uh, one of the interesting pieces of data we have is LCMC3, where the window to surgery after the two dose of tezolima was very short. It was within two weeks. And when you look at immune-related adverse events in that trial, there are actually more in the post-surgical setting than there were uh, during the induction regimen. It's a short course, so it's rare to get really severe uh, uh, immune adverse reactions. And, and with just a couple doses, it happens, but it's rare. So I, I like to wait a good month, and particularly in the context of chemo, I think you need a good three to four weeks before the marrow recovers. When there are complications, I just wait till the patient's ready. I, I don't feel a rush to take them to the OR. I uh, certainly don't want to bring a frail patient uh, expeditiously to the operating room when, when there might be other alternatives or more time to recover from the problems. That and, and how long will you wait for someone who has a grade three or four immune-related so I, I have all my medical oncologists on a text message and we communicate about those patients. I think that's really important because they, uh, at, during those times, the patient is really in their hands and, and you have to be able to share, I think, how that patient is evolving. And I just had a discussion like that yesterday about patients on a trial and whether we should skip the fourth cycle and what do we do? Do we go to surgery? Do we wait it out a bit more and rescan, et cetera? So, you know, historically... I've always felt that, and I tell my patients that after 
when we used to use uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, that they have we have a three to four month window of where you're going to see the effect. In fact, if you get continual scans, you would see continual shrinkage over that period. Uh, and so I, we in in a GN it was 34 days, which in both arms, which is pretty reasonable. There were none done before two weeks, but I think Jonathan's points taken. So around a month is what we do. But I I don't hesitate to go you know 60 days on somebody uh, if they've had a tough time, but you still think they're going to pull through. I call it the thumb test. I look at them and just sort of experience of sticking the thumb up and looking at them. Uh, and because there, there is that separation of the patients who frankly were, de- super, were super debilitated from therapy. Uh, and we just know that, that frankly, making that decision sooner as opposed to later and getting them into a, to a radiotherapy protocol, pro- a more specific type thing makes sense. Yeah, my, we really struggle with our uh, medical oncologists in that time. You know, once we kind of get to that six weeks and we say, oh, you know, they're not perfect. We need a little more time. I can feel how antsy they are. You know, we talk yeah. about our sphincter tone. I can feel their sphincter tone <laughs> across the table at tumor board. Yeah. And we say, okay, we'll look again at eight weeks and 12 weeks. And I'm, I'm, it's hard for me to get them to not treat them past 12 weeks. Yeah. It's really a struggle. I, I don't need the patient to be off steroids, but I need them to be down to maybe five, 10 milligrams. You know, so it, it's, um, I, I think that's quite important. And, and I think you have to discuss the alternatives with the patient. They have to understand that they, you know, this isn't the end. They're, if we don't go to the operating room, it's not a catastrophe. There, there are other ways to uh, salvage their disease. Following surgery, the patient, for which patient would you consider adjuvant immunotherapy? One, patients with past CR, two patients with persistent disease, both, neither, or I'm not sure. So I think the most popular question, uh, answer here is both, that we would consider adjuvant therapy, you know, whether there is a past CR or persistent disease. Um, I think this reflects my practice. I kind of push them all back to the medical oncologist and say, hey, go for it. And it's definitely at my tumor boards, depending upon whether you want them to receive adjuvant or not. I know exactly which oncologist to send them to just got an access program and we have a TZO in the adjuvant space and uh, we have now adjuvant Pembro through an access program and I can't get the medical oncologist to really say no ever because I think they're in, a, in that sort of defensive position of having therapies uh, available to the patient and it's hard for them not to offer it unless there's a clear contraindication the patient's just not fit or doesn't, doesn't want it. But um, the, the data is not super strong for patients under I th- our practice and where I really strongly recommend is greater than 50 percent at TZO, there's, a, there's, a, there's an overall survival benefit and, and it's not subtle. It's almost 20 percent at five years. So, so I really uh, advocate for that and less convinced on the other yeah. side. And, and I think that the data on all of these trials leads to mature enough for the PCR question that their survival is not 100%. And, and, you know, I always come back to breast cancer. They're unhappy with a 96% survival in the control arm, and they treat everything. So I don't think we should take a 30 or 40% uh, relapse and, and death rate for somebody in the good arm of our trials. Maybe the um, CTDNA data that's, um, that's connected to all these trials, you know, maybe someone who is path CR and then goes the MRD negative, you know, that maybe we'd follow those people. I, I don't know. But right now, I kind of feel like we should be treating everyone some, it, with something. With something, even the path CRs? Yeah. It, wow. Well, yeah. 
I mean, if if you really scrutinize the Kaplan Meyer curves and you look at uh, eight one six, it's about a year out that that uh, bo- both the treated, you know, the the IO treated and, and not start to drop off. If you look at Nadim too, where they got six months. Not too long after that six-month uh, time point, you, you start to see a little drop-off, and it's also true in in, in six seven one. Um, I haven't uh, noticed. I think the data still has to mature a little bit for aging, but uh, but yeah, it, it, it's a tough question. It's a tough question. I I completely agree. I do think that the patients with persistent disease are probably the more interesting to me. Uh, maybe that's because it's more. That's 75% of the patients in these trials. So I think that's the one we really have to tease out and look for better answers. Uh, I would like to get more information out of our pathology than just the yes, no, because I think there's more there in terms of the molecular analysis of the tumors, the depth of response, things like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, factors like, so I, I don't know what's happening at your centers, but our pathology reports becoming quite detailed. Uh, with percent residual viable tumor, they'll tell us what proportion is tumor, what proportion is fibrosis, what proportion is necrosis. Necrosis may have some poor prognostic uh, features to it, and so. Uh, and then there's also the scenario where you have a complete response to the tumor, but there's persistent nodal disease, uh, which in some studies might be captured as a major pathological response, but but might be a poor actor. Right. So. I think how we report is is going to become more and more important. Um, someone did ask about MDR and uh, I'm sorry, MRD and its role here. And I, like I said, I think you described it well. It's uh, experimental. It's included and embedded in most of these trials. It is unfortunately not ready for prime time. So I think we're in the open uh, question and answer phase. We have about four minutes. Um, I think the only question we kind of didn't really hit to on the iPad, um, there was one about minimally invasive procedures and you know would the ability to do a case minimally invasively uh, drive you toward induction away from induction and I guess I do think of David those kind of five centimeter right upper lobe node negative tumors like if you know you can do that with a VATS are you going to mess that up by inducing someone and does that change your your thoughts? I can't say that I've, I've had too many cases where it has created a situation where I can't do it by VATS that I thought I could have done it beforehand. Um, what what the problem I've found is that because I'm more and more confident or have a sense that there could have been a good response, um, I tend to want to progress minimally invasively more and I'm doing things that I didn't used to do minimally invasively and, and, and it can be very uh, torturous in the OR to know whether I, this is the time I need to convert or not. Am I compromising the quality of the operation or not? Um, and, and so I find those decisions currently the hardest to make in, in the operating room. You know, the original anecdotal reports were talking about the sort of pseudo progression and these large nodes and made this dangerous and so forth. I mean, we don't see that very often, but occasionally we will, when you go in to do a VATS lobe, you will uh, the, the lesion itself will be smaller and then there'll be some very beefy large nodes. But what I found generally is they're beefy large nodes, but they kind of splay the PA and everything open and they're not attached to anything. So in some way it makes the dissection a little easier when you pluck them out uh, because everything has sort of been pre-dissected for you because of these, uh, and they're clearly large reactive nodes. And it kind of symbolizes a, a, a robust immunologic response 
from the uh, from the checkpoint agent, and and I haven't found that to be a problem, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for for lobes. It's also a very interesting question here about the amount of tissue required for evaluation of response to neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. And I think this gets down to sometimes what I suffer with by large upper lobe tumors sitting on the PA. Am I going to do a pneumonectomy for someone who might not have any disease left? I unfortunately don't know that until we have the whole specimen out and in pathology, whether you know, what kind of response we've really had. I've definitely had the frozen section room yell at me for, you know, saying, I can't tell what this is, so you're going to have to make the decision. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's quite resource intensive for us to send a ton of frozen sections. So on regular cases, I don't send a bunch, but on these cases I do. And I find that uh, having some appreciation nodal response, the patient's node positive preoperatively and you send a few nodes and they're all coming back negative, that's kind of a guide that maybe uh, there's more profound response in the tumor as well. Uh, I don't hesitate to send, you know, bronchial and vascular margins much more than I used to uh, because I'm trying to do parenchymal preserving surgery as much as possible. Um, so I, th I think that's something that really has changed in my practice. I'd like to see a show of hands for those of you who, you know, have operated after uh, these um, you know, how many of you have done a pneumonectomy and had it as a path CR? I certainly have in a number of patients. It, you know, it, and, it doesn't uh, feel good. With, when, and in my case, it was all people who had still persistent large hyalur masses that were, you know, hard and you couldn't do anything but a pneumonectomy. And luckily, they all done well, but it's, it is a little frustrating uh, to come back then and see them two weeks post-op with, you know, no disease. Yeah, Eric? Exactly. Yeah. So the exactly. comment in the room was that we're all happy when we do such things in the esophagus. Yeah, but it's only the esophagus. It's not like lung. <laughs> but no, I think I think the trade-off is is we probably will be doing more larger resection sleeves, vascular these things with with uh, you know with sterile specimen. So I'm I'm not sure it's a bad thing. I just think it's something we're going to get used to. I do like that dem uh, that. Uh, uh, example, Ara, because I, I think it's true. We, we've very much accepted that we cannot tell until the tumor's out in the esophagus. And I think we probably are going to need to accept that in the lung too. It's going to be a long time, I think, before MRD is going to be able to make that for us. All right, we need to end. Thank you all for your participation and your questions. Uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HXS 860. This activity is supported through independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merck and Company Incorporated.